Hey, everybody. Welcome to Why It Matters, the podcast for the dreamers and the driven. We're changing the world their way. Our guest this week is Connor Harbison. He's the founder of Atlas Urban Farms and created a way for you to grow fresh basil from your kitchen wall. In this episode, he shares his journey as an entrepreneur and his vision as an environmental innovator. I see the vision, the long-term vision, like a like a hundred-year vision, as um, our cities feed us. I think it's it's figuring out how we can bring this technology into cities, and you're seeing green walls are more and more common. They're still very expensive, and I think a green wall is great, but I think a green wall that feeds people is even better. Before we listen to the rest of the episode, everybody take a second to settle in, appreciate where you are, and take a deep breath with me. And now, off to the episode. And we are live. Connor Harbison, welcome to Why It Matters. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this episode for a while now and excited to talk with yourself, who is a technically a student founder and a student founder in the space that I'm in. And that's whether you want to call it social impact, environmental impact, social innovation, all these terms thrown around. And not many people in society know what it means. Not many students know what it means. And so it's really nice to be able to connect with someone who's in the space and doing something entrepreneurial. Um, I'm, I'm excited to learn from you and your journey and what you've been through because <laughs> I know myself that is not too easy. Um, but before all that, I'd love to talk about what you're focused on now, which is a company called Atlas Urban Farms. Um, and so I'd love to ask you, open up the floor, what is Atlas Urban Farms? Sure. Um, well, thanks again for having me. And I think it's going to be a really fun conversation. Yeah. Um, Atlas Urban Farms uh, is my startup. Uh, we design vertical farming systems for restaurants so that chefs can grow their own ingredients, saving money, saving time. It's better for the environment and they're delivering a fresher product to their customers so really trying to figure out how we can you know do one thing that has all of these other benefits um and doing it in a way that's both environmentally and financially sustainable so that we can grow uh you know without relying on grants or uh, pitch competitions or donations or anything like that definitely um i think that part hit me in terms of the financially stable part of it is figuring out that model and how it's going to work given a lot of like your product like thinking these like new innovations that are coming about and how old models of venture capital and things like that might support it but also might be a little a little harder to match in terms of what you're trying to do as a company um i'd love to ask you a bit more so like you mentioned vertical farming um could you describe like can you paint a picture of what what does your product look like i've seen it through images, but maybe for people listening, like, what is a vertical farm? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, vertical farming, um, for those who aren't aware, is just uh, 
sort of organizing the inputs so that you can make it a lot more efficient. When I say inputs, I mean light, water, and nutrients. That's really all a plant needs. Um, typically, you don't use soil. Um, so a lot of times you'll see these massive warehouses and they'll have almost think of it like, a, you know, you go to Home Depot and they have those huge stacks that, that go up to the, they, they just do like warehouse like that, but filled with plants. Um, and typically you need about eight to 12 inches uh, of space between the plants and the light. So think if that's 30 feet tall, you can get 30, 30 rows uh, and each plant takes up about a square inch. So you can sort of do the math. Um, there's some really cool, like massive scale companies doing this, uh, App Harvest, Bowery Farms, Gotham Greens, Aero Farms, um, doing some really, really cool stuff. Um, we're not doing that. We're, we're, we're at a much smaller scale. Um, so if you've heard of a company called uh, Freight Farms, we're doing something a little similar to them. So Freight Farms takes a shipping container and packages basically a whole farm inside using vertical farming. And the beauty of vertical farming is you can make it a lot more efficient. Like I said about, you, you can really condense the square footage. Um, it's also a lot, we, we use a process called hydroponics, uh, which is Greek. It really just means water work. So we're not using soil. We're using the water to deliver the nutrients. Wow. Um, so, you know, you could, one, one very simplified way of thinking about it is like, instead of us eating solid food and having to digest it we're drinking a smoothie and that smoothie is you know really rich and we don't have to spend time digesting or even better yet uh having sort of like an iv drip if you're in the hospital something like that uh and we're giving it to the plants and just giving them exactly what they need the exact light exact nutrients exact water perfect conditions and they grow two to three times faster um so that's the background what we do we make these panels Right. We make a wall panel. It's about the size of a TV, um, 34 inches wide, 18 inches tall, seven inches deep. Uh, it hosts 26 plants. Uh, it's all white. Uh, you, it's very important um, for light reasons. Um, and it goes on the wall. You hang it like a TV. Uh, and the idea is these things are modular. So if you want one and you have a small mom and pop restaurant, it's great. You don't have a ton of square footage. We're gonna we're gonna pack about fifty square feet of growing space into one and a half square feet of your space because it's vertical. But if you have a larger space, if you have a larger restaurant, you need more uh, more to use more uh, herbs. These things are modular, so you can put them on the wall like tiles. You can have six, seven, eight, ten, fifteen, however many your sort of wall will support. So that's that's the idea. Cool. Super cool. Um, yeah. Thanks for the picture. Um, from that, there's a few questions I had in terms of, so yeah. if I like walk outside right now and I see like plants and stuff growing, like I feel like the fundamental part of it is like, you see like the dirt and the mud and the soil. And so yeah. how does, how does that work in terms of like growing a plant? Like what is the plant like sitting in? Like what is the water? How do you deliver nutrients to the plant? Yeah, so you can sort of think of like if if you go outside, I'm, I'm looking right now and there's like a tree out my window, right? It's it's in soil, it's in the ground. The soil sort of does three different things, right? Number one, it sort of provides a structure for the roots, right? It's, the roots can't just dangle out in the air. They need something to 
hold on to, to anchor it, right? So let's say anchoring. Number two, the soil sort of acts as a sponge. So the, the uh, think of it like a camel, like a camel's hump stores moisture, right? Uh, and similarly, the soil will store moisture so that the tree or the plant can drink over time because there's only a certain amount of moisture it can absorb at a time, right? So sort of a sponge. And number three is nutrients, right? So any, any soil is going to have some level of nutrients in it. Uh, we, we boost the nutrients for the food we grow uh, through fertilizers. Um, and we can get super into the weeds on the chemistry if you want. Um, but uh, really, it's, it's going to be the food as well, right? So, so we have the anchoring, we have the sponge, and we have the food, the three things that soil provides. We do those in three different ways with, with hydroponics. Th for the anchoring, we use something called rock wool. Uh, and I actually have a piece of it right over. I actually have a bunch of it. Uh, I have some of it right here. Rock wool is exactly what it sounds like. It's just uh, wool made out of rocks. It's kind of mm. spongy. Um, and it has a hole in it. That's where the seed goes. And then uh, the plant will come out. Roots will come out. And eventually the, the plant will sort of take this over. Um, but it just gives it something to sort of hold on to, especially when it's very small, when it's in that germination phase. Um, again, I mentioned this is, uh, this is pretty squishy right it holds water probably probably uh weighs two or three times as much when it's soaked um so that just gives the, the plant a little bit of an extra you know sort of like wearing a camel back when you're going hiking carrying a water bottle around um and then for the nutrients we have special nutrients that we add to the water right and these are water soluble it's the exact same thing you and i need you know it's the calcium uh, it's phosphates. It's it's uh, it, there's a there's a you'll see on any any food, uh, sorry any plant food. Uh, it's an NPK, so it's uh, nitrogen, uh, phosphorus, and potassium. Um, and that's just it, it'll be three numbers. It'll be like four, five, six, or ten, twenty, thirty. Or there's a bunch of different varieties. Um, but we, we put the, the nutrients in the water and then the water is sort of this rich uh, mix for the plants and it gives them exactly what they want. Um, and you can get very precise with this. I've, I've been going back and forth with my food scientist trying to dial it into the parts per million for these, these basil seedlings that we're doing now. So it, it gets very precise. Super cool. That's something that I was going to ask you about too, in terms of you creating this environment for the plant to become the best version of itself for restaurants yeah. and chefs. And um, you mentioned like what you were just saying, like the exactness of the light and the nutrients. How does that work? Like how does even like for me, like backing up and trying to understand like, or if there's a, like as me, Luke, human, like I'm eating food and food makes me feel good. And I try to eat foods that make me feel good and give me a lot of energy and like applying that to a plant, like, if you see a plant outside and it's really growing and flourishing in a great way, it's probably because it's getting like a lot of sunlight and like probably the right amounts of it. So how does like, how do you go from like, how would you know like the amount of light that a plant is getting and what is good for it? Like, how is that measured and captured? Um, yeah. So it's uh, technically speaking, it's, it's captured in something called lumens. Um, and any light you can 
it'll say this many lumens. Um, this information is pretty like for any given species. So right here I have, uh, and I promise this isn't just because I knew I was going to be on this. Like I just, <laughs> my apartment is, is like our headquarters. So I just have boxes of stuff all lying around, but like I have probably 15 varieties of seeds right here. Right. I've got parsley. I've got cilantro. I've got thyme. I've got a couple types of basil. Um, I don't know off the top of my head, oh, this one needs this much light, this one needs this much light, but you can Google it and that's really what we do. It's like, okay, how much does this need? And then uh, again, I have a food scientist on my team so I can say, okay, if we take the basil from 14 hours of light a day to 18, what's that going to do? Um, mm. And yeah, we're going to get bigger leaves, but the, they're going to have less time to sort of process the sugars that they're producing when they photosynthesize. So the taste is going to be a little different. Um, and that's uh, something we're very we, excited. Yeah. Can we break that down just for, I feel like it's super interesting and like gets yeah. down into like the weeds, not to use a pun, yeah. but yeah. yeah. No, there's so many of these food jokes. When you're working food, you start <laughs> like, oh yeah. yeah. Um, so the, how does that work in terms of like light to me, like super interesting. It's just, it's this thing coming from the sky and it, it gives us like, our energy it comes from the plants, comes from animals. It all starts with light. And so if you have a plant that's being grown for 14 hours versus 18 hours, how did that, if you could explain the dynamics of that and how it plays into taste and the health of the plant and things like that. Sure. Um, yes. Yeah, so one slight correction, I would say they're growing 24 hours. Um, they might be getting light for, 14, 12, 10, whatever the number is. Um, I know flowers need up to 20. Mm. Um, but flowers are extremely energy intensive. So um, just, I mean, you can think of it as like the plants are going through puberty. So that's very energy intensive. Uh, they're, they're, they're getting ready to make baby plants. That's, that's what a flower <laughs> is. Um, so so if, if you are at home gardening and you see like your herbs starting to, flower get those because because it's going to put all of its energy into that um and actually herb flowers can be really good really concentrated like basil flowers excellent mint flowers really nice but it's just uh it's um so sorry tangent no uh basically so so photosynthesis we all learned it in in high school they take light in they combine it with carbon uh dioxide and uh and water and spit out oxygen which is great for us and it, they convert it into energy for themselves and into glucose into sugar um they then break that sugar apart and it produces energy right they, they burn it um and they process that sugar at night at night and and one of the beauties of vertical farming of, of Really, really, the umbrella term is controlled environment agriculture (CEA). Um, I personally think vertical farming is the most accessible. Um, for a while, I called this hydroponic. It, it is like it is all of these things. It's just which one is the most gets it across quicker, most quickly. Um, the beauty of this is we can decide how long the night is. We don't have to 
wait on the sun. We don't have to wait on the seasons. It's it's uh, we can produce the same thing every single time. Um, so while they have that nighttime, that downtime while they're sleeping, they are sort of processing that sugar, and that sugar can get converted into the different oils that give us the flavor. Right. That's what we're really interested in. These different oils, and a lot of them are uh, pesticides, actually. So the menthol and mint, which we get that, that really nice, fresh taste, we love it. Uh, bugs hate it. It's, it's pesticide. That's what the caffeine is in, in, uh, in uh, coffee grows like a cherry, actually. It's, it's like the pit. Uh, that's what THC is. Um, that's what all of these different compounds are actually natural pesticides. And we've sort of said, oh, I, I like the taste of that, or I like the way this one makes me feel. Um, and it's really interesting because again, sort of comparing to humans, different plants will have their sort of oils or their, their flavor develop at different times. So like parsley or cilantro, it takes a little bit more time. Basil is from day one, not day one exactly, but my, see, I have a bunch of seedlings here in my apartment that I'm delivering today. Um, the, I, I was. I was watering them yesterday. I'm like, what's that smell? And I just, I just like touched, uh, touched the leaves, and I was like, oh, that is a beautiful, just strong basil like aroma. So they're already producing those oils. We love that. That's exactly what we want. Um, so it's, it's, uh, you know, it's biology. It's the same as humans. It's just in a different sort of context and you have the same same pieces we all need water we all need light we all need energy we all need you know calcium to go big and strong it's just sort of rearranging those pieces and if you do it one way you get humans if you do it another way you get basil if you do it another way you get i don't know crabs or blue whales <laughs> or something you know we're all kind of the same definitely pretty pretty crazy when you put it like that one thing yeah. in there Actually, to back up a little bit, I think yeah. one thing that's interesting I was reading on the website was that you guys use 95% less water than traditional agriculture, which moving into a period where resources, <clears throat> excuse me, are going to be more scarce and things like that. How does, how does that work in terms of, <clears throat> sorry, the environmental impacts of Atlas? And you could describe in how it works within the plant and the product and like, what are you guys doing? Is it seems like an innovation that's going slightly off the path or maybe like fully off the path of traditional agriculture. So what are you guys doing in terms of like, Hey, this is like the, the future and the direction of agriculture and me thinking, I'm thinking, Hey, I might move to New York in a few months. And like, if there's a product, like what your company offers where I can grow my own or just a little bit of, have a little bit of green in my apartment or near yeah. me would be really nice. And being able to do it in a place like New York where there's millions of people and millions of people are continuing to flock towards urban environments, it seems like a product like yours is will be super important for the future. And so it's kind of a trend that aligns with what's going on, but also fits into this bigger need, which is our resources are becoming, have been overused or not properly respected. And so going to have to start respecting them in the right way. So I'd love to hear like, what is the 
environmental impact that, or that, that term's kind of odd, but what do you guys, how do you view the environmental impact of your product? Yeah, uh, I think we see it as this is going to be controlled environment, agriculture, vertical farming, hydroponics, you know, all of these pieces are going to be part of our uh, food system going forward. That's what we believe. Um, actually, it was about five years ago, I was hiking in Wyoming uh, and I came down to, it was in Grand Teton National Park. I came down uh, into Jackson to to get a beer after a long day of hiking. I wanted a, a burger and a beer and just to sort of be in civilization a little bit. Um, and Jackson is very touristy. You know, you can buy overpriced uh, cowboy hats. They have like an arch made of like caribou antlers or something, elk antlers. Um, and I walked over to Snake River Brewing and across the street from it was this gleaming glass and steel structure with all these pink lights inside. And I looked at it and I was like, what is that? And it had this uh, sign vertical harvest on it. And that was my first introduction to vertical farming and it wasn't in it wasn't in new york it wasn't in san francisco it wasn't silicon valley it was it was in jackson hole wyoming like that's the coolest thing i've ever seen that's the future um and i think as i've gotten to know this space more um it's just become more and more evident you know like at the time i didn't see that and say oh it's i you know their average food journey in this country is 1500 miles and this is reducing i didn't note facts you know um or that hydroponics usually uses about 95 percent less water um now i do now i have sort of like i had the, the right brain like oh that's really cool i think that'd be like that has a, has a role play now it's like oh because of x y and z um for our product uh i think it's really awesome these these much larger players uh you know like the app harvests of the world um that are just spending billions of dollars on this and doing it at massive scale um i think that's really important but there's still going to be some sort of transport um transport element to it uh there's also you know they're they're sort of limited to certain crops because uh the economics don't work out so for for hydroponics you basically do tomatoes leafy greens and herbs um, and everything else is not really economically viable um why is because, that for, uh for a number of reasons um you can't really do root vegetables on these um like so carrots potatoes those are sort of you, you can't do them um others you can but it's not it just takes too long it's too like melons uh like squash it's um you can do peppers you can do berries um and then staple crops it just does not make sense to do them this way uh, this way so like wheat rice anything like that um which is something i'm curious about in the long run uh, but right now we got to get our, our beachhead. Tomatoes. Um, yeah. So I think for us, 
um, it's really been interesting because at different times in the process, we emphasized or de-emphasized the, the sustainability aspect of it. Um, right now, we're sort of in one of those phases where the it's not something we talk about as much because we are selling to restaurants. And restaurants, especially these, these very small restaurants, um, you know, I, I spoke with one chef. I said, "How? so tell me about sustainability. How do you think about that? And he's like, I don't think about it at all. I buy 200 pounds of chicken every week. You know, we, every time someone touches a new piece of food they, in my kitchen, they have to put on new plastic gloves. Um, and that's, I, you know, I'm not here making a judgment. I wish everyone cared about sustainability, but I think the fun challenge for us is figuring out how do we meet their needs in a way that also is sustainable, right? So it's like, hey, we're going to, we're going to, bring you better, fresher herbs that cost about one-sixth the price of what you're currently paying. And by the way, they're going to be way more sustainable. It's just like a cherry on top. So another food. There are these things. <laughs> you, you'll just be speaking. You'll be speaking in like food puns and, and food sayings. It's just we have so many of them. Um, that was one of the reasons I originally wanted to get into this. Like people are like, oh, I'm building this app. Like, what's the total addressable market? Oh, it's this many million, whatever, this many million, maybe a billion. How many people on earth eat? All of them. How many people in the future are going to eat? All of them. Everyone's <laughs> got to eat. Like, Big market. There's no disrupting that. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I think something in there, in terms of the, I'm dealing with that now, the dynamics of building a company that is, quote unquote sustainable where it can sustain itself is providing a product that's sustainable. And I'd love to talk to you about that that definition in your own experience with it. Because I think it's something obviously like everyone, most people don't assume, but most people have heard this concept of climate change and the environment and things are happening. And but what really what are these what does it mean? What is sustainability and if you could talk about that in the context of atlas and what does it mean you mentioned earlier the concept of being financially sustainable and also environmentally sustainable so if you could describe what it means for you as a company to be environmentally sustainable and how the dynamics of that affect the people that you're working with like the story you just told about the chef who's it's really tricky because at the end of the day it does come down or we live in a world today where a lot of decisions are based off of the bottom line and, and numbers and finance, which makes sense. You need to have some type of measurement, but it's hard to measure things when there's new innovations coming about and it's hard to put numbers on them. And so I'd love to hear from, from you and your journey in the company, what, what is sustainability for you and how are you approaching it? Yeah, I, I think that's a, you're right. It is a really tough question. Um, and to your, to your earlier point about, you know, having something like this in your apartment when you moved to New York and having some greenery around, um, for a while we were really pushing like, look, green space is so good for your mental health. There are so many, there's so many studies there. It has this wonderful effect. Um, it's really tough to measure. You know, you don't, you don't think like, man, I just, it, it's, it's not like a top of mind thing, right? It's, it's, it's sort of very much in the background and you don't, 
you, you don't uh, you're not like oh man I'm anxious or I'm I'm depressed or I'm I'm whatever. It's probably because I haven't been around enough green space that that connection doesn't get made. So you know we we haven't been emphasizing that because it's really tough to to make that pitch, especially when we're a new company. You know we have to be extremely concrete in what we can do. Um, and we find that by saying, look, we can grow this many pounds of basil and you're paying this much. And with us, you're going to pay this much. And by the way, our basil is going to be more sustainable. It's going to use 5% of the water. You're not going to have to ship it from California or Mexico. So think of all the carbon that's being emitted, just getting it from there to here. And then you're throwing away half of it because it's not pretty. It, it gets mishandled it gets bruised basil has one of the shortest shelf lives of, of any herb it's about three days um yeah there there's all these there's all these pieces um you're you're gonna have more space in your walk-in your walk-in uh refrigerator because you're not refrigerating your herbs they're, they're just growing and they're they're right there on the wall um there's a there's a there's a number of aspects to it um and I think I think to 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 really boil it down is like sustainability to me, the word sustainability means like not needing outside inputs. Right. So for for uh you know for 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 like like the perfect perfectly sustainable ecosystem is one that just runs itself right like a like a meadow right it's perfect doesn't need people uh one great example uh of a, a, an ecosystem becoming more sustainable i don't know if you know about yellowstone and the reintroduction of the wolves no oh it's super cool you got to look it up so all the wolves in yellowstone were killed off by like ranchers right and in the 1990s, they reintroduced these wolves, like like gray wolves, like wild, like what dogs were 100,000 years ago. And the deer populations were out of control, and then they started coming back under control because the wolves were, were eating, and it sort of created parity. And then because there were fewer deer, the, the grass was able to grow back a little bit more. It wasn't getting overgrazed, and literally rivers change their courses just because they introduced oh. like not that like 20 wolves like a small number of wolves and this is really cool concept it's called rewilding right and, and that was an ecosystem that was out of balance and it was it wasn't like toxic it wasn't like you know chernobyl or, or an oil spill or something like that but it was an ecosystem that was out of balance, and and we we sort of corrected that wrong, uh, reintroduced the wolves, and things balanced back out, and now it's running more smoothly. Is my understanding? Not an ecologist. Uh, that that um, the the sort of analogy here is is a sustainable company is one that does not need external you know you know investors it does not need external uh donations does not need you know government support does not need grants you know um i'm speaking more financially right now um and i think 
by being able to support ourselves through sales, we will be able to stay true to that mission of, hey, we are going to shrink the food journey in this country from 1,500 miles to about 15 feet. We are going to reduce the average amount of water that we use to grow our crops. We're going to make this uh, more accessible. So if you want some, there's the, the market for these uh, hydroponic systems for consumers is pretty crowded. And if you have a thousand dollars and and like a backyard in California, you're golden. We're gonna do just fine. If you don't, might be tough. Um, so that that is also one of our goals, you know, getting uh, getting this scale with people who have a really really painful uh, painful headache. Let's say uh, these, these restaurants who are just paying too much for their ingredients. And throwing away half of it and delivering a, a less fresh product, uh, we think you know we can solve their problem. And then, as we're producing so many of them, we can bring that price down and offer it to people who are food insecure, who are just trying to you know make good food for their family, who are trying to uh, save a little bit of money because because inflation has just destroyed uh, grocery budgets and, and all of that. So that's sort of the way we see things. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I appreciate it. I think one thing I wanted to talk to you about is your entrepreneurial journey. And in that, you mentioned many things, but a few of them seemed like theme challenges. And one that stood out for me is how you have to pitch it today as this is what's going to help you in terms of your bottom line. And you have to describe the product, even though it's doing something that is will be more relevant and understood in the future, which is something that's sustainable and has benefits like whether it's affecting your depression, your anxiety, mental health, things that today aren't quantified and will eventually be quantified, but you're trying to fit in a product that will have a deeper understanding for regular people of what that product can do for you and not being able to quantify it. So investors can understand the, the mental impacts perhaps some of the long-term environmental impacts or the food insecure impacts, if you can't quantify that today. So that's in itself is an issue. And there's issues of the financial aspect in terms of, in terms of the consumer being able to pay for your product and having it be accessible financially. And I'm sure there's several other things you're working on. You mentioned you're working with food scientists and the biology, and I'm sure there's the, building the product and the size of the product, what can go into the product. And I could probably <laughs> yeah. share share several of these things. And so I just wanted to share that for partly for people listening and partly for yourself to acknowledge the difficulty and the struggle of being an entrepreneur in this space, because it's having a whole added layer of obstacles that people in other spaces don't have to face because they don't have different things going on in their company that have to be measured and aren't measured. And so I just want to say that um, just to create a space for people to be like, okay, what does it mean to have a company that's sustainable or environmentally friendly or social innovation? And then there's a lot of things going on. And I'd love to talk to you about some of those obstacles in a bit. But before that, I'd love to know the start of this. And before even getting to the start of how this thing was created, at least in my own experience, before something is exists in the world, there's a lot of things 
that go on, whether it's learning, like books, movies, there's certain mentors you have, there's certain experiences you have to get to like, hey, I'm going to build a vertical farm. Like, <laughs> it's pretty cool. It's super cool that you're building a farm inside. And like, you and I both were not like older people. And so looking for people that are older or, or younger and being like, hey, I want to, I want to build a vertical farm, or I want to help blank i want to do this like it's is this huge gap between the idea of wanting to do something and doing it and i'd love to talk to you about how you filled that gap and how you went from even how did you get into how did you like you told the story about the ranch but like what was what there's so many things you could be doing with your life today like millions of things with the internet and what was it that led you to like i'm gonna I'm going to start a vertical farm. <laughs> okay. So this is a long story. Are, are you okay. are you ready? I think okay. so. <laughs> All right. Um, I'll just plug first up top. Uh, if anyone listening is interested in, in building or designing a, a vertical farm, hydroponic system, go to the Instagram, Atlas Urban Farms on Instagram, at Atlas Urban Farms. Um, a ton of info a ton of just i was very early in this in this company i was just like here's what i'm doing i don't know if it's going to work you can try it too uh best of luck and you know there's a lot of info on there um it's super easy i built my first system for 50 dollars. so and I, then i grew a bunch of kale yeah um so you you can do it too um don't need any special knowledge uh okay so we last left off with me uh, getting that beer in Wyoming. Uh, that was in 2017. I didn't think about it for three more years. I, I was a startup coach in, in Montana. I did a software startup. I was like, this startup thing is cool. I didn't quite have, I couldn't quite put all the pieces together to, to go for it. Um, but I sort of got the like, oh, identify a problem, come up with the solution, talk to all the right people. Um, and I realized, talk, okay. Ask you a question yeah. there. Um, in terms of, I think there's a lot of, like you just mentioned, there's product, there's sales, there's marketing, there's all these like terms and things to be done in a company. And so it's it's intimidating for someone that has never been in business or, or in business. I'd love to talk to you about that, just to go deeper into that first journey of pursuing something within software what was your that feeling of you mentioned you had some of the pieces but not the going for it what was that what was your mindset like in that environment and what was the the situation the different things you're working with and why do you feel like it didn't work out yeah so so i worked in uh one of my friends and coworkers, I think accurately described it as a, as a nonprofit consulting agency. We were an office at Montana State, any, it was called the Blackstone Launchpad. Uh, anybody could come in and say, hey, I have this idea for this business, and we would give them advice. And pretty much everyone on the, on the team um, had done a business of some sort, whether that's like, hey, I, I screen printed t-shirts and sold them, or I'm a freelance graphic designer, or I build uh you know like vr apps or games or something like that everyone had something i was the outreach guy so i would go and i would talk i would go and i would 
I would bring in mentors. I'd go and like be friendly with the city so that we could get their resources. You know, that was, that was my job. And I would take a lot of meetings. I was, there was one point I was a regular at three different coffee shops because uh, that's where I took my meetings. Yeah. Uh, and I really loved meeting with people, but I hated the like, hey, how does Tuesday work for you? No, Wednesday, you know. So it started like, okay, what if there were like a way I could just schedule these things like that? Just click, click, done. Right. That was sort of like, I wanted it to be two clicks on your phone. And like, I said, Hey Luke, do you want to meet? Like, and you know, it, it sort of does all the thinking for us. Cause that's what software is good at. And yeah, cool. Then it's on our calendar. We don't even have to think about it. And I started asking people like, Hey, do you, do you have this problem too? And they'd say, ah, I have like Calendly. I have, you can book me. Ah, I don't have enough meetings. I have an executive assistant. Like, oh, must be nice. <laughs> I'm my own executive assistant. <laughs> um, but the the answer they kept getting was like, I don't have that. But you know what really is annoying? Email introductions. Like, oh, tell me more. And it would just be, you know, I, I would have all of these meetings and we'd talk about whatever we needed to talk about. And then at the end, I'd be like, so by the way, like introductions, talk, talk, just, you know, like very, very, uh, very low key, very just like, hey, what do you think about this? And I probably had about 200 conversations like this. And some of them were follow up. Some of them were, were longer. Some of them were specifically. Um, but I sort of got to the point where like, okay, I think I have an idea that could, could address this. And I didn't know how to code. Um, but I went through the process and I actually worked with one of our coaches who was very good at software design and development, uh, to wireframe it all out. So I basically, actually the, the very first one, I used an app called Marvel, like the, the superheroes, um, different, totally different company that has nothing to do with Disney, but, uh, I, I sketched everything out on whiteboards and I would take a picture of it. And then on my phone, you could code, not code, you could say this area is a button and it was like drawn as a button. So like it looked like someone just drew it on a whiteboard, but it was on my phone. And when I clicked through, it would go to different pages and I would sort of got like, okay, this is like the flow of it. Okay. And I tried to get some developers on board, didn't really work out, but it, it helped me sort of refine what I was looking to build and sort of pared it down to, to get to an MVP minimum viable product. And eventually I, one of my friends, one of my smartest friends, he's at Stanford doing a computer science PhD was like, Oh, you should use W3 schools. It's an awesome website. And it's like, here's the line of code to insert a button. Here's a line of code to do a pop. up Here's a line, you know, and you have all of these building blocks and you, add them all up and suddenly you have an app. So I started working on that. And about three months later, I published my first version. It was called Windsor, uh, W-I-N-D-S-R um, for the, for the Windsor knot. Cause I was like tying people together. It was, you know, mm. um, and it worked, you know, uh, and I, I spoke to some people about using it and I sort of, that was when it, it sort of, faltered um i think i got into a like a like well i gotta make this first version perfect so i gotta tweak it and keep tweaking it rather than putting it out there and letting people try it and break it and um i think i was also a little intimidated because it dealt with email and there might have been some security issues that that were just beyond me so 
a little bit of like a, I'm scared to let my baby out in the world because it might hurt people. Um, mm. I don't know. So that was sort of where I, I didn't have that follow through. Um, and then uh, in sort of in this time period, I started applying to business schools because uh, I realized like, okay, I don't have everything that I need, but I know where I can get it. You know, I, I know I can go to business school, get the formal education. Um, and over the course of that, it was a probably a six month process. I forget. Um, yeah, about a six month process. Um, by the end of that, I realized, you know what, saving people time on the emails, that doesn't really get me out of bed. So I, I wrapped up Windsor, a good experience, um, and said, I'm going to go to business school. I got into Babson, which is where we met. Uh, and I sort of decided I'm going to go and I'm going to graduate with a startup. And that's, that's why I'm gone. Cool. And I had a couple ideas going into Babson. Um, I had gone to Boulder Startup Week a couple times. And one of the times I went to a panel on mushrooms and not like psychedelic mushrooms, although they, they did say a couple things about psychedelics and, and mental health and sort of the, the way new therapies are coming out, which is a very cool space, but more different, uh, different properties. So they spoke about one type that eats plastic, right? And I thought, wow, what if you could, you know, what if you had like a, pollution cleanup system that you, you scatter spores of, of specialty mushrooms and they eat all the plastic or something like that. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Um, another, I was thinking about uh, rethinking uh, the finance of higher education. And I think right now higher education treats students like customers. Um, where I think in terms of society, college and grad students and PhD students are more investments. Like as a society as a whole, we are mm. better off for having more educated people. Um, like they will go on to create more and, and build more. Um, so how could we align those incentives um, rather than extracting from these people who are trying to learn, who are trying to better themselves and, and, load them up with debt for years to come um the more like a fintech right i'd love to ask you a question based on a few things you yeah. mentioned one is yeah. just pulling out this number of like 200 conversations you have with people in coffee shops and talking about this idea for a new way to manage your email and stuff that just for people listening when you mentioned the idea of even scheduling a time to talk with someone is is energy and effort and finding the day and the time, the place. You have to prepare for the conversation. You have to take synthesize your notes from the conversation and move forward with that. And so one conversation in itself is a lot of energy. And doing 200 of them is like 200. Is, it's, it's like a number, but actually sitting down and having 200 conversations is a lot of, you want to do 200 workouts, you want to have 200 bananas, you want to drink 200 bottles of water. It's like, it's a, it's a big number. And so you have 200 conversations and you spend three months building a product, you have the product, you test it, you have six month process of getting into grad school, which is in itself an emotional journey, a draining journey. and 
one thing that Babson talks about a lot is this entrepreneurial mindset. And it is somewhat of a cliche, at least within the school, it's some entrepreneurial mindset, but it really, I feel like is, is super applicable to a lot of what it means to be an entrepreneur and to keep going and push through obstacles and have the energy like you said, get out of bed in the morning. What's that thing that's going to get you out of bed? For people listening that are interested in entrepreneurship, I wanted to share that story of 200 conversations and what you mentioned so far is, hey, this is like a, this is a journey and to be invested in yeah. the journey. And what was your mindset throughout that time? And how did you keep going? Because before for myself, I'll just share a little bit. I made, I've been thinking and working and learning and meeting people and having conversations, doing that thing for four years throughout freshman year, senior year to college. And then after senior year, I just made a decision, made a commitment that I was going to go for it, just go for it and go all in and going all in and having the mindset of, it sounded like you were saying this about your approach to Babson is I'm going to come out of this with a startup. I'm going to do it. And what was, what was your mindset throughout the process before Babson and how did you sustain that? Was it something you felt like was innate or was it something that was driven by outside forces? Um, I think it was, I mean, it was a combo. I, that's sort of a cop-out answer, but, you know, it was it was outside forces earlier in life that I sort of internalized, right? So before I moved to Montana, I worked in Washington, D.C. I worked in government on Capitol Hill. And anytime we wanted to do something, it was like, well, we're in the minority. We are, you know, our, our, our my boss was a member of Congress. Um, like she's she's a freshman, so she can't do anything. You know, well, we're just one seat. We can't. You know, you need two hundred eighteen votes in the House, and then you have to have the Senate. And you know, there was always a reason not to do something. Um, so I think a lot of my time in my sort of startup world, the last five years or so, has just been like, let me do it. Let me just like do it because I I got so frustrated and so just like like whoa we can't do that because we've never done the thing so we can't continue like it's just it's such a circular um and i had a little bit of that experience as well in montana i i the first year i was there i was doing a peer service with americorps helping underserved groups start businesses that's how i got started there and then i transitioned to moving uh to working directly for the university um and they just had a very the, the nonprofit i was placed through so they were sort of my they they signed my checks but they didn't supervise me day to day so it was it was a strange situation um you know they would do these things that made no sense and they would just say well we've always done it this way so oh man that is um so i think i think part of it is is having having a real problem with status quo like well this is how it's always been but i you can see and sometimes the the problems of the status quo are more evident than others uh, sometimes it does take a lot of digging to get to them um and sometimes it's you know it's on its face um like 
healthcare, for example. It's very obvious the system's terribly broken. Getting the solution is a lot harder, you know. Um, I think too, uh, you know, having a chip on your shoulder helps. Uh, I've heard that from other entrepreneurs. But uh, when I was in DC, I applied to seventy jobs. I got one call back. Uh, I didn't didn't get a job, um, and that's why I eventually moved to Montana. Um, part of it is like, well, I don't need I don't need your your job portal. I don't need your your uh, I don't know your first, second, third round interview, whatever. I don't need your cover letter. I don't need any of that. Um, and I think before Atlas really started to coalesce in the second year of my MBA, so the first year, it was it was less of like I'm going towards this company and less of and more of I'm running away from ever having to work for or apply to a job, work for someone else or apply to a job ever again. So there was sort of that carrot and stick. Um, and then finally, I'd say, you know, you can teach design thinking, you can teach the business model canvas, you can teach any of these tools that are, you know, the books zero to one or lean startup or crossing the chasm and good to great, any of those. I think what's a lot harder to teach is having a comfort with uncertainty, not a comfort, but like accepting, like sitting in it. Like we joked at the beginning, like I'm moving in like four weeks. I don't know where I'm moving to. Sometimes I freak out and then I'm like, you know what? Freaking out right now is not helpful. So I'm not going to do that. Um, because there's always going to be something that comes up. There's always another thing. Like, like you said, there's, I have to be managing the botany. I have to be managing the, the mechanical and electrical engineering of this thing. I'm not an engineer. I never took calculus. I studied history in college. Uh, you know, I have to be managing the the um, the finances and and making sure all the tax stuff is in on time. And I have to, I have a I have a small team now, so I have to manage them. And it's sort of interpersonal stuff, and I gotta communicate. You know, it's in social media. It's just a million things, right? Um, and yeah, it's it's just uh, it's it's challenging, but that's kind of the fun of it, you know. Um, so I think, I don't necessarily think, you know, people say like, oh, you have to love what you do. I don't necessarily think that I, that was actually one of my hesitancies at the beginning. I was like, well, I don't love urban farming. I don't love this thing. I don't, you know, it's, but I just kept coming back to it. So it just, and now I do like I, I do take genuine pleasure in, in like these ceilings that I'm growing. It's like uh, my high point of my day is getting to water them because it's like I'm I'm nurturing these these little, you know, perfect example. Going back to sustainability, they're under a humidity. There it's it's uh, it's like a seed tray, and then it has like a humidity uh, piece on top that's clear plastic. That's like a closed system, right? But it's not sustainable because every day I have to put more resources into it. I have to mm. spray it with water and now it's, it's um, there's a little bit of nutrients in there. Um, so that's a, that's a non-sustainable system because it needs outside <laughs> input. Yeah. I appreciate Bring everything. Yeah. Full circle. I appreciate yeah, the, that's what we're all about. Definitely. The story, <laughs> literally. <laughs> I uh, appreciate the story and the 
story about the product being full circle and circling back to the start of Atlas. Do you have this journey? And I appreciate you sharing the journey going from history, studying history to AmeriCorps to Washington, D.C., working in Capitol Hill to software company to nonprofit consulting to like, wow, and lots of experiences and learnings and now vertical farming and urban agriculture. And how did that happen? What was, you mentioned, we've talked about this, this visceral emotional experience where you see this farm in Montana and it hits you. Wow. That is something that will be in the future and a, a great part of the future. So going from that thought and that idea and for people listening, if, if I, before I committed to doing why it matters and focusing, I felt as an individual, someone interested in entrepreneurship, that there was ideas coming left and right into my ears and through my brain and like, wow, how do I, how do I pursue this idea? How do I act on it? Which one do I want to focus on? How did, how did, atlas come about from the several ideas that you had and how did you what was the first step you took because you mentioned there's botany there's engineering there's obviously financial side and other aspects with it what was the the first you mentioned the book zero to one two what was that first step that you took to get yourself some momentum um trying to think I, I sort of focused on as i came into babson i think that summer so so like two years ago two years ago exactly i decided okay urban food supply um we're just going to build a bunch of these vertical harvests in every food desert and it's going to solve the problem great and i said that and it was done and that's you know why i'm a millionaire now no that's that's not <laughs> how that works um so i started sort of trying to reach out to people. Uh, I, I moved to Boston. Uh, this was still the middle of the pandemic. Nobody had vaccines yet. Uh, so that aspect of it was a little tough. Um, and I don't recall there being a ton of progress that first semester of, of business school, but uh, a lot of that was just trying to keep my head above water with classes. Um, I think it was around December, I started growing my own food in my apartment. Um, and that December, January, January 21, I guess it would be, uh, that's when I started the Instagram, um, not to grow like any kind of following just to document what I was doing. You know, I was, I started building, uh, my first tower, uh, here, that was the $50 system that I mentioned. Um, I started doing sprouts in my apartment. So, uh, so sprouts are like infant plants, I would say. Uh, seedlings or like microgreens are like toddlers and then fully grown plants are like fully grown people. Um, the nice thing with sprouts is you can grow them in about five days. You don't need any soil and they're super nutrient dense, um, especially broccoli sprouts. That's what I did. Uh, they have uh, sulforaphane, which is a compound that fights cancer. It's really awesome. You can look it up. Um, but that was my first start. And then I started buying herbs from the grocery store and and uh, propagating them. So if you buy 
I mean, it works with most plants, but if you buy uh, buy them and cut them uh, on an angle, like, like flowers, and put them in the water, in a couple of weeks they'll sprout roots, and then you can put those roots in soil and have it grow. So I I went from a mint cutting like this big to a mint plant that was up to my hip. Um, yeah, it was it was huge, and then it got a fungal infection and died. But oh no, you know. Um, I mean, it was all, it was all learning. So now I, I can sort of, you know, I, I think one of the common things people are like, oh, I don't know when to water it. I, you know, I've, I've done enough now that, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of similar to my 200 conversations. I've done something like 40 different varieties of plants, wow. of edible plants, I should say. Um, so right now in my apartment, I have strawberry, celery, the basil i have jalapenos i'm looking over i have sort of a corner that has a bunch of plants um a few avocado i guess saplings um lemon uh green onions yeah so it sounds Um, just for people listening the the entrepreneurial journey is super deep and there's a lot that goes on that we talked about before in this almost like moment of inception where you brought the idea into your apartment literally in the form of a plant and started growing it and just seeing how the instagram page is cool and there's a lot that's going on you mentioned resources and things you can look to to follow the journey and thank you for sharing that because for myself i've been thinking i want to share what i'm doing more and so I just want to say thank you for that comment because I'm going to look into that and for my own entrepreneurial journey. But for people listening about the start is you just brought a plant in your apartment and started to grow it. And I'd love to ask you, was that bringing that plant in? Was that within the context of, I want to try to build a company in this space or see? Okay. Yeah, so I I think it was in September of that fall I pivoted away from uh, the the vertical farm in every neighborhood. And when I say pivoted, I mean that was what I was talking about, and I started talking about something else. There was no real traction. There was no you know um, a mental pivot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I learned about a company called Brooklyn Grange, based in New York, and they have a rooftop farm, so it's soil but they have about six acres of rooftop farming space on top of three massive like concrete slabs of warehouses. And they grow a hundred thousand pounds of vegetables every, every year, but their main business, their main revenue is events. So imagine going to a wedding at a farm on top of a building with Manhattan in the background. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, and you can charge a lot of money for that. So I said, well, what if that's, you know, like, how do we use our low margin product, which is the vegetables? Um, And I don't recommend being in the business of selling vegetables. Just, you know, that's, that's sort of the, the, the contradiction here. Like we all need to eat, but the minute you take a tomato off the vine that you, the minute you harvest and kale, it's, it's a depreciating product. Um, and there's there's studies of like how the nutritional value drops and so you can google that um 
use that to steer people into a high margin business, which is the event space. So I sort of started looking at like, okay, rooftop, you know, and then I started thinking, well, it could be more than just weddings. What if it were co-working, you know, built around greenery and, and we can use hydroponics. And that's when I started building the tower, not well, sort of a two, two part thing. I think I Googled like DIY hydroponic systems and there's, there's a million ways. Um, you're basically just organizing the system so that the roots hang down and the water reaches the roots. And whether you do that through ebb and flow or they're just sitting in the water or it's a tower and it sort of trickles down, there's a million ways to organize it, right? And I picked this one because it looks cool and because I also have a small apartment and this was the most space efficient one I could find, right? And then I think it was in the spring taking a, a class called the Entrepreneurship Intensity Track at Babson. And, and I realized while I'm building these things, I don't need an acre of rooftop, which by the way, basically doesn't exist in Boston in the way it exists in New York. Um, but I need a couple square feet of a lobby of a you know hallway of a, a closet even, and I can turn that into a garden. That was the next big pivot. Um, so I started looking at apartment complexes. I started looking at co-working spaces. I started looking at retirement homes, schools, all of these different places where it could be sort of an amenity. Um, and to that point, I, or to that, to that end, I should say, I purchased a dozen uh, systems from uh, Lettuce Grow, which is a company out of California. Um, they, they were really great partners. Uh, and that's the, if you've been around Babson, those were the systems that were all over campus this last year. Um, and they uh, certainly helped get the name out. Uh, just about anybody at Bab who was at Babson this last, this last year, I can say, oh yeah, I was the hydroponic guy. Like, oh yeah. yeah that's, that's <laughs> me. Um, and they also helped me understand, okay, I'm running a bunch of these. I'm, I'm visiting each one every week. I'm having a lot of different things. You know, one might have uh, spider mites one week, which are the worst. Mm. Uh, another, the pH might be off. Another, you know, like uh, just the complexity goes up very quickly. Um, and I did that model from all through the fall, which was really challenging. And then in the spring, I had, a, I had some interns join. Um, and it was March of this year, so like five months ago. Um, I was sort of getting ready. I was like, "Look, I graduated in a couple of months. That's I was offering a, a free pilot program to, to these groups, these co-working spaces in the city." And I started going to them and saying, "Look, this is I'm graduating. Who's got to become paid? Here's what I'm thinking." And they were all. Uh, a few of them had said, "Yeah, we love this. We, we were thinking, you were thinking this, but we're thinking this in terms of pricing." Of course, I'm not going to turn down more money. Uh, and then after a couple of weeks, it was like, actually, we don't think we're going to do this right now. Like, okay. Oh. Uh, and that led to my most recent pivot, uh, which was in the spring of this year, which brought us to the current model, uh, which is its own, own story in itself. Cool. Well, I'd love to hop into it. Yeah. Um, so, oh, this isn't plugged in. I thought I had my, my laptop plugged in. Apparently I didn't. 
just, just the cord here, not not into the wall. <laughs> um, yeah, so I I got that news. I worked straight through, um, straight through spring break. You know, going and meeting new new uh, co-working spaces, talking to uh, talking to different people. I was like, okay, let me like we have the we have the plan, we have the program, we have it, and and for uh, Cloudy, it was sort of a, a two part thing. It was we're gonna rent you these um, towers and maintain them for you, so we'll come by each week, and then also do events around them. So a cocktail making class with fresh herbs, or you know, gardening class, and everybody gets to make a. Uh, it's called a Kratky system, K R A T K Y, and for everyone at home who wants to do this but might not have a green thumb check out Kratky. that's the easiest way you can take a yogurt container and turn it into a hydroponic planter never have to water it very easy um i would recommend that to get started um so it was sort of it was sort of gardening plus events um sort of a bundle subscription service monthly payment and then i think it was like a monday they said, yeah, we, we aren't interested in this. Sort of Tuesday, I was like shell-shocked, like, okay, I don't know what to do. Wednesday, I learned I got into the next round of the beta challenge at Babson, the big pitch competition. Yeah. And they said, next week, you got to pitch. So, I did, you know, 36 hours before, I had just learned the whole business fell apart. And they said, okay, and, and you know, in a week, you got to pitch. The Thursday, I decided we're pivoting. I need something to do. Friday, uh, I think I had the first conversation with a chef because I said, okay, co-working isn't going to work, but let me test out, you know, retirement homes, schools, all of these other segments, chefs. And I sort of said, yeah, you know, we, we install these systems and we grow everything and it's a, you know, 90% less square footage. 95% less water. It's it's right there on, on site. The guy said, yeah, when can I have one? Wow. Like, okay, yeah. great. And that's what I pitched. I said, this is, I said, look, we, we pivoted and uh, this is what we're doing. And I, I, I sort of was able to cobble together, I want to say like 20 or 30 people that I spoke to food industry food industry adjacent um you know i talked to caterers i talked to kitchen equipment suppliers i you know just to sort of flesh out um and they really hammered me on the pricing i i didn't have the pricing worked out um but i made it through i made it through to uh the the finals and between the semifinals and the finals i I did all the math. I, I one of my professors at Babson, uh, Luke Stein, helped me go through the financials, and we thought, hey, you know, restaurants throw away about half of the herbs that they buy because they're not fresh enough, they're whatever. Uh, so we think, okay, you take you spend like eight thousand dollars a year on herbs, four thousand of that is going in the trash. Give us that money, and we'll give you back eight thousand dollars of herbs. It turns out it's more like give us that money and we'll we'll give you um well it probably wouldn't be that much, but uh it 
it's about uh, six times the amount. So, so you know, give us was it sixteen hundred dollars, and we'll give you eight thousand dollars of herbs. Wow. Um, yeah, and it depends on the herb. It it depends on a couple things, um, but the the financial angle of it made a lot of sense and i i pitched that hard i i really did a lot of work it's a it's a complicated story because it's like okay this this may sense on a plate it doesn't seem like a lot but it adds up and over the course of a year and restaurants are very low margin you know um i pitched that and then i won beta challenge i won twenty eight thousand dollars congrats that's crazy yeah um and it was like I, I I pivoted this business three weeks ago, and and now I just won. Um, yeah, and then that was that was uh, middle of April, so that was almost four months ago. Thank you for sharing. It's a crazy story, and for people listening, the it gets back to the point you made on uncertainty and being able to. For myself, my experience with uncertainty has been just waiting to have a product in my app be released and in that time figuring out what is the app going to be in the business model and the product and all these things that you mentioned and how when you're in a space of uncertainty a really important thing that i've experienced is to be certain when you know things have to change which is sounds like the story you just told which is when you get feedback that's a no i don't like this or yes i do that chef tells you you're like this is what i want today and i'm really excited to use your products go go make the decision yeah. and the ability to make decisions and be certain in uncertainty is it's super difficult and it's a, a thing that has to be fine-tuned within the individual but once you have it it's it's extremely valuable and it's just just those reps those 200 conversations those growing 40 different types of seeds like it's just those reps and getting them in is the only way to start doing it is today and i'd love to pivot the conversation a little bit to you personally and yeah. ask you who is connor we've kind of talked a lot about the journey from kind of college-ish area to beyond but who is connor and where did a entrepreneur vertical farm connoisseur come from yeah uh so in a literal sense i i i used to say i was uh i'm like the fresh prince i was born in west philadelphia um but uh yeah I, i'm from philadelphia um you know i grew up in the city so if i was from boston i'd be from like back bay or south end um and most of my friends didn't live in the city so that was a really I don't think I really appreciated it until I was an adult. I sort of went away to college and came back and said, like, oh, this is, you know, not everyone has this. Um, I don't know. I think, um, I think both of my, both of my grandfathers probably had a lot to do. Uh, one who's still with us is, was a history professor. And that's sort of where I got that love of history. And, and I remember I I've always enjoyed this game called civilization, uh, where you start as like cave people and build up a civilization, you know, launch rockets to space or invade everybody or, you know, cure cancer or whatever. And I remember playing with him and I was like, Oh, I'm the Romans and I'm building the pyramid. And he was like, You can't do that. I was like, 
no, but I can. The game says I can. Like, <laughs> you don't have to be, the, you know, so just like it was this sandbox where you could build something, right? From Start from scratch and go. Uh, and my other grandfather, who passed away about 10 years ago, uh, owned a hardware store. And he, which he founded with his his father in, I want to say, like the 1940s, right? It had been around forever. Uh, and I, I never knew the great grandfather. But, um, you know, we would always go and visit. And I'd, I'd try to sit on all the tractors just because it was, you know, I could sit on them and something different but he was always just like very hands-on very like he could build anything uh and uh i think he really encouraged i i was like legos as a kid i was like building things and i would just create you know you know i saw lord lord of the rings is like my favorite favorite movies ever and i would build these massive castles and there'd be like armies squaring off and like just everything um but i also remember one time in eighth grade we did a uh we did a williamsburg project and everyone had to make something right you had to and it could be like oh i you know this is calligraphy or it doesn't didn't have to be um being a 13 year old boy i was like i'm gonna do blacksmithing and like like nine kids nine none of us boys all did blacksmithing right and that was how it was every single year and some people did like oh i made like a nail and it's like you know whatever uh i called up my grandpa who had a massive hardware store and, and workshop and said hey i want to make a horseshoe it's like great let's do it so we got a, a piece of uh it was probably steel i still have it at home um a flat bar right probably probably about a foot long and heated it up with like a blowtorch and oh, bent okay. it and it you know a horseshoe is like maybe about the size of your hand it's it's not huge my horseshoe probably ended up being the size of like this it you know it's massive and then used a drill press to drill the holes in it uh so it's it's like it's this huge thing and I did it in like an afternoon and it was like a three month project, uh, three month project for school. And I took it in and I was like, I'm finished. And my teacher no was way. like, are you going to make more of them? Like, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I just remember, uh, building things has always been fun. Another, another story, um, in also in eighth grade we were doing rube goldberg machines in physics and it was you know the six uh what is it uh lever pulley screw inclined plane uh there's two more i'm forgetting them but you know what a rube goldberg machine is it's where like all the little things you know in a ball and it like it's a really could, complicated way to like oh yeah if you could just explain it real quick for people that don't know yeah, so so there are six simple machines: uh, lever, pulley, screw, inclined plane. I'm forgetting the other two. You can Google them. Um, but this guy Rube Goldberg, R U B E Goldberg, G O L B, or G O L D B E R G, um, would come up with these like these contraptions that were just combinations of these simple machines that would do much more complex things. And there's a like TikTok is full of it, Instagram, YouTube, whatever. These just massive things that will like flip a pancake, 
you know, but it takes like five minutes because you like drop a ball here and it rolls and it knocks over this thing and it like does it's they're really cool. So we had to build these in in um in physics class in eighth grade, right? And most people made like a little like oh incline plane to like one pulley to like lever done. We were allowed we had a we had a limit on the size, right? We had one lab table, so it was you know five feet long by three feet wide by four feet tall so my friends and i went out to home depot our, our moms took us to home depot we were 13 we couldn't drive and we bought all of this lumber and we built these we we're like okay it's going to be mostly inclined plane and if we want this many inclined planes we have to start it at the top so we had four feet of space ours was three and a half feet tall right on top of a lab table and it was like this massive it almost looked like a city because it was all these like like big vertical pieces that were holding it was like like skyscrapers and like the thing eventually got down and there was one last little thing and we put a little bit of food dye in it and, and the, the the machine in general just poured a cup of water that was all it did but we put a little bit of food dye in it and the the last little uh there was like a tube and we told our teacher it was like okay it's gonna come out purple and we're gonna say like look it turns water to wine that's what it does no and way. we were like, here, you you try and he and he tried, he was like, mm, that's really good. <laughs> wow. And that was and we got like an award at the end of the year because our teacher was like, This is like everyone did this and you guys did this. It was just like it was yeah, it was fun. I like to build things. Super cool. It's it's a yeah. thank you for sharing the stories. And I hold my own grandfather okay. warm place in my heart. And grandfathers, grandmothers, parents everyone around is it's awesome to have really great people around and i feel lucky to have met you and have this conversation yeah. and share those stories and it's super cool and for people listening the, the experiences you have in your childhood you never know what they're going to lead to they could lead to a, a company where you're pitching on stage three weeks after pivoting and you win twenty eight thousand dollars. so <laughs> pretty wild another full circle type of thing they're super cool and one thing I wanted to talk to you about in terms of yourself and now this intersection you're at with Atlas is what is your vision for your work and what you do? And it could be that, or if you want to touch on the vision for what you think vertical farming could be, but just in general, what, what do you see is the vision for your work? Yeah, I see the vision, the long-term vision, like a, like a hundred year vision as, um, our cities feed us. Uh, there's there's a there's an idea called solar punk. Um, so I guess I guess the original one's like cyberpunk, which is more uh, like Blade Runner esque, and it's very dystopian. And you know, I think there are some parallels to real life right now. But there's an alternative called solar punk, and it's sort of this utopian, like, hey, we figure this all out, and everything is eco friendly, and and you should Google it. The pictures are super cool, and that has been sort of a, a guiding north star if you will um i think it's it's figuring out how we can bring this technology into cities and you're seeing green walls are more and more common they're still very expensive um and i think a green wall is great but i think a green wall that feeds people is even better uh i yeah. i think about what we do as installation art that feeds people um you know sort of nourishing both their their whatever you want to call it spiritual side their soul their you know their 
emotional enrichment, but also literally nourishing them because uh, we all need that. Um, so we, we're really targeting this beachhead, um, which is uh, Southeast Asian restaurants growing Thai basil for them. Um, as this is, this is where the pain point is the greatest, this is where we can have the most impact and then grow from there. Um, we definitely foresee going back to co-working, schools, apartments, retirement homes. Um, there's probably a consumer product down the line. Um, although again, that's a crowded space. So we're, we want to be, uh, we want to have all our ducks in a row before we go there. Um, we think there are probably some software products. Uh, you know, imagine you have 20 of these. How do you manage all of them? Well, what if there was an app that could head this one needs water, this one needs nutrients, this one's ready to harvest, um, as well as, you know, controlling the inputs saying, I want, I want this much basil to be a little bit sweeter and I want this much to be a little bit more bitter and, and how I can control that. And we think we'll be able to do that um, and use the software to sort of translate that. So it's, it's not the user having to like, okay, how many milligrams of this and that? And don't worry about it. Chemistry is hard. Um, we'll just, we'll make it automatic. And then, and then bigger systems, bigger installations. Um, I think that, uh, there's there's a lot of opportunity out there um and they just going from there i think probably microgreens uh actually we, we've already gotten interest in microgreens um but that's a it's a different sort of uh architecture so we we're not doing that just yet um yeah i love the vision in that phrase of our cities feed us super powerful yes and i can yeah. see it i don't know what solar punk is but i'm excited to check it out and thank you for Good. sharing it's that it's cool cool it's cool i'm very yeah. excited <laughs> it's a yeah i mean okay i was just gonna say it's it's a visual that that is very easy to see in conceptualizing yeah. to be in and so having that idea being painted and led by people like yourself and atlas is is something I'm excited to see happen because I, I know it'll happen. It's just the evolution, it's like the way things are going. And dude, I'm just excited for 50 years from now when we're reconnecting, having an interview, be like, remember that time you mentioned the city's feeding us and yeah. now we're grabbing a leaf off the, the wall mid-interview? <laughs> that's honestly, that's it. You know, I, I have sort of two visions, the one vision now and the one vision later the vision now is you go to a, a bar a restaurant if you drink and you say i want a, I want a mojito right and the bartender turns around picks the mint from right behind puts it in a glass and hands it to you and the food journey is right there and you get to see the whole thing the the longer term vision is you know you're walking down the street you're walking home because we're all going to live in walkable cities uh <laughs> and you know you pick your salad for the evening because it's growing on a wall somewhere whether it's in your office building or on the street like I, i'm not 100 percent sure but just creating that post-scarcity world I, I think we have the, the tools for it we just have to make we just have to, to build it you know 100 percent, definitely i'm excited for it it's gonna be a fun these are the so the most fun times to be alive and to be in this space is like the most fun space and on that note i'd love to talk to you this is a question i ask every guest is 
Why do you feel like you matter? And in placing that question in the context of your, I love Atlas and I love what you've done, what you're doing. And it, it does seem there's, I'll actually, I'll back up and I don't want to fill in any your, of your potential answer, but why do you feel like you're, you talked about your entrepreneurial journey and things you've done and been through and learned and experienced, but why do you feel like you are someone that is going to do this type of a thing? That is a really interesting question. Um, I don't, I don't think I've ever consciously thought like, why do I matter? Um, I think the closest I can get to that, I was, I was very fortunate. I went to a really good high school. Everyone has gone on to do, you know, everyone's a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. Um, and when I got to college and I thought that was normal, right? I thought like, oh, everybody goes to college, everybody, you know. And when I got to college, I realized like, oh, not everybody is, some people are okay with just, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to do the minimum and I'm going to have a comfortable, easy life, um, which is totally fine. I'm not implying those people are lazy. I think there are lazy people, but like, hey, you want to just do that? Totally fine. I think it sort of, um, I think I had a sort of, I, I was in a fraternity and I had this, not necessarily a moment, but a, a realization over over uh, a period where like um, I had a responsibility to, to, to contribute to this group because I had the ability to contribute mm-hmm. um, because I, you know, I was interested in, in taking a leadership position because I was, was able to balance my studies with, with, you know, running different aspects of this, this group. Um, I, I love comic books. Uh, I think the, um, with power, with great power, there must come, there must also come great responsibility, uh, from Spider-Man is like an all time quote. Mm. Uh, and I think that like, if you have the ability to, to do something to help, then you have the responsibility to do that. Um, and I'm, turns out I'm a pretty good entrepreneur, you know, I, 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 yeah, I, uh, I thought I was going to go into politics and then I turns out I'm not good at politics. <laughs> turns out I can't get a job. I can't network to, to get a position in DC and that's okay. You know, that's, yeah. uh, it's ended up being much better for my mental health. Um, but then I, I went and I worked with about a thousand early stage ventures in Montana and I sort of figured out this works, this doesn't work. This is like, Oh, if you're doing this type of business model, then you do this. Uh, and then I brought that experience to my more formal uh, education at Babson. Um, and it's just always been something that really excites me. Like you have no resources. How do you get this thing off the ground? How do you get started? How do you, you know, build up? And, you know, I'm I'm still very early in Alice's journey, but I feel like I think the, the other thing that helps me is like, look, if everything blows up, if it all falls apart, I can go get a job. I can, I can, I'm going to be fine. You know, it's, yeah. it's, uh, yeah. I, so I sort of have a, a responsibility, I think. And, uh, 
you know, I, I it's it's really interesting because I I have people on my team, super smart people, highly educated, who are very good at what they do. Very good at what they do, right? But they can't do everything, right? Um, and I think to go back to to your earlier question, um, I forget the exact question, but it was like, what makes an entrepreneur? What factors or you know? And I had said is comfort with uncertainty. I think being able to be like pretty good at everything. Um, like I'm not the best accountant. I'm quite honestly not very good at operations. Um, you know, I think I'm decent at social media. Uh, but I, I think I'm better than average at all of them, right? Mm. Um, I'm very good at pitching. I'm, <laughs> I'm much better than average at that. But uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be egotistical on that one. <laughs> um, but I think having that and being able to be like pretty good at everything and then being able to find the people who are way smarter than you at the one thing, but they're, they're, they're a specialist. Right. Um, and that's actually something I'm navigating now. I've never really had to hire. I've never really had to build a team, uh, in business school. They just, this is your team, get used to it. Um, and everyone's sort of on the same page. Uh, and now, you know, I have to build a team and I have to sort of, okay, well, this is, I'm in charge and I have the equity and sort of figuring out who gets what. And it's, 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 okay. um, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Is, uh, it's a lot of different pieces being an entrepreneur as we've discussed and yeah. being the, I feel similar about having to, if you're going to build an organization or even have a relationship with somebody within a relationship with a person, there's so many different aspects to it there's things that you do with that person there's the emotional relationship you have there's the physical relationship you have there's the intellectual relationship you have and being able to tap into all the potentially spiritual like having a relationship with all those things is really important to a successful relationship and the same goes for anything that you build or maintain there's being able to be connected to all parts of the relationship is super important and I feel for myself as an entrepreneur being connected to the communications part of it, like the messaging thing that you were solving for, whether it's the product and how easy it is for a user to join an app and it goes on and on. And I feel very aligned with what you said in terms of being connected to all parts of the organization. And I feel like that's something today, which I don't want to open a, a can of worms, but it's a whole nother topic in terms of, why companies have become not that sustainable is they're not too connected with all parts of the organization and the effects of it and kind of taking that and applying it to what you've done. And I wrap up with this question and ask each guest, why do you feel like your work matters? Um, that's a really great question because I think a lot of people with their early stage startup, they'll be like, oh, I make this app for, you know, people who like this type of green tea, but not that type of green tea. And this is a big problem because, um, and I think anytime you're having to justify 
problem, you're sort of losing the argument, losing the conversation. Um, but everybody's startup is their most important thing to them, right? It's like we spend just untold numbers of hours obsessing over the, the smallest, smallest things. And to us, it's like the world. Like right now, I'm really thinking about how do I deliver the right amount of nitrogen to these seedlings, right? Crazy. Literally, we're talking the parts per million, like a 1,000 part per million. Uh, but I think when you start to get it, you know, it took me, you know, a year and a half, almost two years to where it was really dialed in. A lot of times it was me saying, the world needs this. And the world was like, ah, do we really need this? I don't know. Um, you know, or me saying like, co-working spaces need this. And co-working spaces were like, not us, you know. Um, but I think eventually you you talk to enough people and you you sort of it clicks right um and i was fortunate enough to be doing this during school so i this was sort of i picked all my classes pointing towards what do i need to get the venture and, and sort of i sort of had the one thing a lot harder when people are working full-time and they have kids and they have families when they have whatever um i, I think having that outside validation it's like somebody wants this someone's like I cannot wait to have this. We're installing this afternoon, our very first panel in about three hours. Uh, they're not even open yet. The restaurant isn't even open, right? I had to build like a, excuse me, a, like a makeshift wooden stand for this thing because it's it's not the, it's not going to be the final. It's just they want to get it up and running and start getting used to it and, and, and learn everything they can. Um, so... I don't know. There's there's a couple couple answers to it. Like, why do I think it matters for humanity? People got to eat. Uh, if you want to really freak yourself out and give yourself some anxiety, look at uh, soil depletion. Uh, we're going to be running out of uh, soil in about 2050. Uh, really scary stuff. Um, why does it matter for these restaurants, these chefs? You know, these people are artists. They they got into this because they want to create beautiful meals, um, beautiful tasting, beautiful looking, beautiful, you know, the experience. Um, and I very much see our role right now as, as helping these artists do the best they can. You know, it's, I think, you know, you don't go to a restaurant like, oh, do you have the whatever cooktop? You go for the meal, right? And that's that's where... We're helping them deliver that better, fresher meal. Um, and why does it matter for me? Like, I like building things. I, I honestly have spent way too much time in the foundry, uh, probably way too much time on product, but it's enjoyable. Um, and I think for me, like, I want to build something that people love. I want to build something that, you know, it's it's cliche, you know, someone, I want to be like, oh, I want to be like Steve Jobs on every aspect if he was an asshole. But, uh, the way people are like religiously in love with with Apple products, I, I hope we can get you know a fraction of that. I hope people are just like, you know what? I love these things. I love that I can put this thing on the wall or whatever our future systems look like, and I can get just this 
amazing food. Uh, so I think that's, that's for me, why it matters. I love that. I love you want to, to spread the love. And I appreciate that we had this conversation. I'm happy we got to connect and get to learn more about you and Atlas. And I've seen your product live in person. I was actually walking to meet someone and I stopped. I was like, what is that? I saw it in the lobby of a building. Yeah. So it caught my attention. I could feel the love from it. So I love it. I love what you're doing. I support the vision. I see it happening. I'm super excited. I'm excited to see where it goes and try to help in any way I can and get Thank get you. these leafy greens and other vegetables and things right around us for our physical health, our mental health. So I just want to say thank you for the work that you do and for coming on. It was a great conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was a really fun uh, sort of meandering at times, but I hope uh, <laughs> hope it was sort of covered all the bases. Um, but yeah, it's it's fun to to talk at length about this. So it's I, I appreciate it. And that wraps up today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, follow us on LinkedIn at Why It Matters and on Instagram at Why underscore it underscore matters underscore. You will find our community of guests and listeners who are forming the next generation of changemakers. Come join the group of people leading humanity into the future. I'll see you all soon.